Welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at another short-lived distributor, one that existed for nearly 20 years as a production company before getting into the distribution game. And although Hemdale Films would produce and distribute a number of memorable films during its 28-year history, it's been gone almost as long as it existed, and is only remembered barely by film nerds like myself, who were paying attention to the opening credits of their films. Hemdale Film Corporation. That was their fanfare. The name Hemdale is a portmanteau of its founders' names. David Hemmings, the star of Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, and John Daly, a former journalist turned film producer. The Hemdale Company would be founded in London in 1967, just after Hemmings became a star thanks to Blow Up, although for the first 14 years of its existence, Hemdale would only produce three films the 1972 Robert Altman psychological horror film Images, the 1975 Ken Russell adaptation of The Who's rock opera Tommy, and the 1979 comedy Sunburn featuring the then Farrah Fawcett Majors. But they had their fingers in many an entertainment pie. They would manage bands like Black Sabbath and Yes. They produced the famed 1974 Muhammad Ali-George Foreman heavyweight fight known as the Rumble in the Jungle. They would be involved in London stage productions of Grease and Oliver, and they helped to put cable television into hotel rooms worldwide. But mainly, they helped successful British actors and celebrities avoid paying their taxes, which, in the late 1960s United Kingdom, was hovering around 90%. And if you want to read some really crazy stories about the lengths some British stars would go to avoid paying their taxes, do some searching about British tax exiles. Do you remember that Beatles song, Taxman? If you drive a car, car I'll tax the street. If you try to fix I'll it, tax your street. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. Yeah, that was George Harrison voicing his opinion about the British tax rates. The classic Rolling Stones album, Exile on Main Street? The album was named for their tax status at the time of the recording. Anyway, Hemdale was taking money from British stars and investing it in productions all over the place. By 1971, Hemmings would leave the company, selling his shares to Daly. And slowly but surely, Daly would start shedding the non-movie-related projects and start producing more and more films. Hemdale itself would handle distribution of their own movies in the United Kingdom throughout the 70s and early 80s, but in America, they'd often be released through all kinds of distributors. The previously mentioned Sunburn, which Daly co-wrote as well as co-produced, and the 1981 orangutan comedy Going Ape with Danny DeVito and Tony Danza were released by Paramount Pictures. Universal Studios handled the 1981 Burt Lancaster, Diane Lane Western, Catalani and Little Britches, and Carbon Copy, which featured Denzel Washington in his first starring role, was released through Avco Embassy. But in 1984, Hemdale found themselves in an interesting position of having financed a true surprise hit film. for The Terminator had been floating around Hollywood for years. It had first been optioned by James Cameron's former boss at New World Pictures, Roger Corman. But the budget would prove to be too high for Corman, and he let the film go. In late 1982, Orion Pictures, who we'll talk about more in a future episode, 
was ready to make a deal to distribute the final movie, but they wanted a partner to help pay for the production. In stepped Daly and Hemdale, and the $6.4 million film started shooting in March of 1984. Daly and Cameron would clash over how to end the film, almost coming to blows. Daly wanted the film to end after the tanker explosion, while Cameron wanted to keep the film as it is now, with the climax in the factory and that short epilogue. Daly would eventually relent, and the film would go on to gross nearly $40 million when it was released into American theaters in late October of 1984. But Orion wasn't really focused on The Terminator. Milos Forman's Amadeus had opened in theaters six weeks before The Terminator and was doing great business in limited release, and Orion was seeing Oscar glory for that film. Cameron appealed to Orion president Mike Medavoy to put some more money into The Terminator's advertising budget, having topped the box office charts for two weeks, that Medavoy saw the film as a cheap sci-fi film that wouldn't last more than a couple weeks in theaters anyway. So Cameron went to Hemdale for help, and Daly came up with the money to help support the advertising of the film. By the end of the 1984 calendar year, The Terminator would be Orion's highest grossing movie released that year, with more than $34 million in ticket sales. Amadeus would finally outgross The Terminator, but not until the end of March 1985, the first weekend after Amadeus had won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Lead Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. 1985 would start off as another good year for Hemdale. Their first two productions of the year, the John Schlesinger drama The Falcon and the Snowman, starring Sean Penn and Timothy Hutton, and The Return of the Living Dead, both performed well upon their theatrical releases in conjunction with Orion Pictures. However, towards the end of the year, they found themselves in a position of having two movies they had produced that they were unable to find distributors for, Philippe Mora's Howling 2 and Oliver Stone's Salvador. After having avoided the possibility for nearly 20 years, Daly decided that Hemdale would get into the distribution game in the United States. Time. Ow. It's the rocky, shocking, new way of horror. Howling 2. Howling 2, which sometime after its theatrical release picked up the god-awful subtitle Your Sister is a Werewolf, opened in theaters in December of 1985. Box office grosses for The Howling 2 have been lost to time, but they probably weren't very good. The movie's not very good either. In fact, it's so bad that the very first thing co-star Christopher Lee did when he met Joe Dante, the director of the first Howling movie, after Dante had hired Lee to appear in Gremlins 2, was to apologize to the filmmaker for ever appearing in The Howling 2. But if you really want to see it, you can rent it from Vudu or iTunes for $3.99 or buy it digitally from iTunes for $14.99. <laughs> Listen, you know, I think it's going to blow on El Salvador real soon. I thought if you guys could get me a new press card for two grand, I could get you some really good stuff. What do you say? Look, this is serious, okay? I need one for old time's sake. you got to give me 500 bucks to go to El Salvador. They kill people here, boy. You believe everything you read in the papers? Yeah, oh, man, you're going to love it here. Getting out of here, boy. Look, Doc, this is my last chance. If I can get some good combat shots for AP, you know, I can make some money. Whatever you do, okay? <laughs> Don't get on the ground. They're not just shooting Indians. They're shooting us. Hey, 
chaos has descended on tiny El Salvador in Central America. They rearranged this kid's molecules and they took their time about it. Richard. He is dying out there right now while we're talking. Some of the information or photos you can throw my way. <laughs> fantastic. I mean, they could come tonight, they could take her away, and they could kill her too. Richard, Richard. That doesn't have anything to do with us. Marry me. It is widely rumored, sir, that you are the head of the death squads terrorizing the countryside of the city. A pathological killer on the right, God knows what on the left, and a gutless middle. Ma'am, these are not combat troops. The ambassador, you know, United States. You gotta get close, Rich, to get the truth. Get too close, you die. <laughs> You're gonna be a big headed man. Salvador, based on the life of American journalist Richard Boyle, as he covered the Salvadoran Civil War in the late 1970s and early 1980s, was Oliver Stone's first truly great movie as a filmmaker. Not that finishing the film was easy. Like with James Cameron during the post production of The Terminator, Daly would get into an often heated battle with Stone over the editing of the movie. And again, Daly would eventually back down and release the film as the director intended. And while Salvador would go on to earn two Academy Award nominations, one for James Woods for Best Actor, and one for Stone and Boyle for their original screenplay, the film would not do well with audiences, grossing just a third of its $4.5 million budget. I remember in the fall of 1986, as Salvador was being released on home video, Richard Boyle and Oliver Stone went on a tour of video stores around the country to help promote the film. One stop was in my then-hometown of Santa Cruz. That video store at the corner of Soquel Drive and Morrissey Avenue is long gone, but my memories of that visit are still fresh 34 years later. How do I know that Oliver Stone is a stone-cold fucking psychopath? Not just from his movies but from the way he answered questions about the left-wing freedom fighters of the FMLN and the right-wing military junta of the Salvadoran regime, which was still in power by that time. And as sad as James Wood has become over the past few years, Salvador is without a doubt his single best performance. But Salvador is significant in another way. The critical reaction to the film convinced Hemdale that Stone was ready to make his next film, the semi-autobiographical Vietnam War movie Platoon, the script of which had been making the rounds around Hollywood for more than a decade. You can rent Salvador from Amazon Prime, iTunes, or Vudu from $3.99, or you can watch it on Hulu if you have Cinemax added to your account. Orion would release two more movies from Hemdale in 1986, At Close Range with Sean Penn and Christopher Walken, and Hoosiers, starring Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper. Italian producer Dano De Laurentiis' new distribution company, DEG, was scheduled to release Hemdale's Hal Needham wrestling commie Body Slam for Christmas of 1986, but for various reasons it would eventually go direct to video a few months later. To say it would not be Needham's best movie would be an understatement, and this is the man who directed Cannonball Run 2. And yes, we'll be covering DEG in an upcoming episode. Hemdale's distribution arm would release one more movie in America during 1986, the British political thriller Defense of the Realm, which starred Gabriel Byrne, Greta Scacchi, and Denham Elliott, who won a BAFTA award for Best Supporting Actor for his role. Not that British film awards mattered to American audiences a third of a century ago. The film did play in limited release for nearly five months, from Thanksgiving 1986 to Easter 1987, but the film would only gross about $750,000. 1987 would start out very well for Hemdale. Three of the films they had a hand in producing, Hoosiers, Salvador, and Platoon, would score 10 Oscar nominations between them, with the latter film winning four, including Best Picture and Best Director for Oliver Stone. But things would fall apart soon thereafter. Daly would find himself in yet another battle with a filmmaker, over the final cut of a movie. This time the director was Ken Friedman, the screenwriter of Heart Like a Wheel, who was making a directorial debut with a contemporary road movie made in USA. But unlike his dealings with Cameron and Stone, 
Daly would stand his ground when it came to how he saw the film. Friedman, perhaps taking a cue from Terry Gilliam and how he forced Universal's hand in getting Brazil released in December 1985, took his personal print of the movie to the Cannes Film Festival, which had invited him and the film to participate as part of the 1987 Director's Fortnight. The film was screened to a packed 1,500-seat auditorium at midnight and purportedly received a 10-minute standing ovation. Although at the Cannes Film Festival, Jean-Luc Godard could screen a one-minute short film of him farting into a paper bag, and that movie would receive a 10-minute standing ovation. Daly, who had not given Friedman clearance to show the film at Cannes, reportedly threatened to have the director arrested if he ever showed that cut of the film publicly ever again. Daly would finally release his preferred cut of the film into theaters in 1989, where it played for one week in a couple theaters before hitting home video. Friedman's version? It has never been publicly screened again. If you want to see Daly's version, there's a copy of a VHS tape floating around out there in the internet. Hemdale would also be sued by platoon producer Arnold Copelson shortly after the Oscar ceremony, claiming Hemdale failed to make prompt payments of his share of the profits. The first Hemdale movie to be released in the theaters in 1987 was River's Edge, which was released by Island Pictures in May. Tim Hunter's dark satire about the lengths a group of Northern California teens would go to help cover up a friend's murder of his girlfriend featured a murderer's row of upcoming stars, including Keanu Reeves, Crispin Glover, Aoni Skye, and Daniel Roebuck. The film got fantastic reviews. Gene Siskel would name it the seventh best film of the year, and it would get rave reviews from David Anson of Newsweek, Vincent Canby of the New York Times, Roger Ebert, and Janet Maslin of the New York Times. And the film would find a modicum of success at theaters, grossing nearly three times its $1.7 million budget. You can rent River's Edge from Amazon Prime or iTunes for $3.99, and it's also available through HBO Go if you have a subscription. That same month, Hemdale itself would release My Little Girl, a proto-short-term 12, which was an early starring role for Mary Stuart Masterson. The film also starred James Earl Jones, and featured the final film role for Oscar winner Geraldine Page, and was also the first film role for Jennifer Lopez. The film would be nominated for Best Dramatic Feature at that year's Sundance Film Festival, but it would be virtually ignored in theaters, barely grossing $25,000. It is not currently available in any video format. In June, Hemdale would release the Australian adventure drama Burke and Wills, which starred the legendary Jack Thompson and Chariots of Fire co-star Nigel Havers. The film got fantastic reviews. In an article for the Los Angeles Times shortly after the film was released, Jack Matthews noted that of the 19 critics who had reviewed the film upon its release, 15 filed positive notices and three others posted mixed reviews. But Humdale put no money into the promotion of the film, having already made its profit packaging the film as part of a $24 million 12-picture video distribution deal with Embassy Home Entertainment, and the film summarily tanked. There's still some VHS copies of the film floating around, but you can't rent it or buy it anywhere currently. In July, Hemdale would release The Whistleblower, a British spy thriller featuring Michael Caine, James Fox, Nigel Havers, and Sir John Gielgud. It also received a number of positive reviews upon release, but... Like Burke and Wills, Hemdale would give the whistleblower the absolute minimum contractually obliged theatrical release. But when you have a film with Michael Caine and Sir John Gielgud, word of mouth tends to get around. Despite never playing in more than 62 theaters, the whistleblower would gross a rather respectable $1.5 million after 10 weeks. It is available on DVD from MGM Home Entertainment. August 1987 would see the release of the Salem Witch Trials comedy spoof Love at Stake through Columbia Pictures' TriStar label. Like many a spoof, Love at Stake widely misses its marks more often than hits them, despite the talents of Barbara Carrera, Bud Court, Police Academy's David Graff, Stuart Pankin, Kelly Preston, and SCTV's Dave Thomas. 
The film would bomb when it was first released, and it would bomb a second time when it was given another chance at life in theaters during Halloween of 1988, raking in a total box office gross of $61,789. If you want to check it out, it's pretty easy to find on YouTube. Hemdale themselves would release the Elliot Gould Howard Hessman drama Inside Out in August 1987. The film is an efficient little movie, mostly taking place inside the apartment of Gould's character, an agoraphobic entrepreneur named Jimmy Morgan. As he is able to place bets and order food and drugs and prostitutes from his computer and modem. Now remember, this was filmed in 1986, a good decade before being able to order anything online would become a reality for most people. That's about all the film is good for today. A snapshot of what the digital world was to the very few who could afford it at the time. There's no box office data to show how well the movie did, but it does not appear that the film played outside of Los Angeles or New York. It's also available on DVD from MGM Home Video. Hemdale Releasing's final film of 1987 was Scenes from a Goldmine, a music-based drama that featured Catherine Mary Stewart as a female songwriter who has an affair with the charismatic lead singer of a rock band who's stealing her songs from behind her back. You want an eclectic supporting cast? Scenes from the Goldmine also features Timothy B. Schmidt, the bassist of the Eagles, John Ford Coley from the 70s musical duo English Dan and John Ford Coley, Lee Ving from the punk band Fear, and Melissa Etheridge. Oh, and Bruce Springsteen's actor sister, Pamela Springsteen is here, too. Other films produced by Hemdale and released through other companies in 1987 include Hotel Colonial, an adventure film featuring John Savage, Rachel Ward, Robert Duvall, and future Il Postino Rido and star Massimo Troisi, which Orion Pictures apparently released in only one theater in New York City in September. Bestseller, a very good crime thriller written by the late, great Larry Cohen, starring James Woods and Brian Dennehy, which Orion Pictures released into 250 theaters in September and would gross a respectable $4.28 million. And High Tide, an Australian drama directed by Gillian Anderson and starring Judy Davis, which TriStar Pictures would release in December to little fanfare. Oh, there's one more film. Hemdale would secure all North American rights to The Last Emperor from producer Jeremy Thomas for $8 million in May of 1986, which helped Thomas get the film financed to the point production could begin in China. Hemdale would actually profit handsomely from the film before it was even released. Having sold the theatrical distribution rights to Columbia Pictures for more than $10 million, and the home video rights to Nelson Entertainment for another $6.5 million. The Last Emperor would sweep the Academy Awards that year, winning all nine of the awards it was nominated for, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Score. And while the film was not a massive success in America, Hemdale would find itself sued twice over the film, once by the producers over the selling of the film to Columbia and Nelson, without properly handling the producer's profit participations, and then a second lawsuit by the producers aimed at Hemdale and Columbia for not properly distributing the movie in America. Part of that suit, which sought more than $30 million in damages, charged that Hemdale, acting in, quote, its established pattern of doing business, unquote, attempted to force Thomas and director Bernardo Bertolucci to settle for less than their fair share of the profits. How much could those profits have been? had Columbia not held the movie in less than 350 theaters until after its historic Oscar victory, more than five months after initial release? The two winners for Best Picture before it, Out of Africa and Platoon, grossed $87 million 
and $138.5 million, respectively, and played in more than 1,100 screens at their widest release a full month before their Oscar wins, and the two Best Picture winners after it, Rain Man and Driving Miss Daisy, grossed $172 million and $106 million, respectively, and played in more than 1,500 screens at their widest release, again a full month before their Oscar wins. The Last Emperor only grossed $44 million and never played on more than 500 screens until after those Oscar wins. And you can't use running time as an excuse because The Last Emperor is only two minutes longer than Out of Africa. One theory is that Columbia never wanted the movie to begin with, that it was picked up by then-studio head David Putnam as a favor to his fellow Brits Daly and Thomas, and that the film was punished by new studio chief Victor Kaufman after Putnam left Columbia, the way most new studio chiefs seem to abandon their predecessor's leftovers once the new boss takes over. We'll be talking about David Putnam at Columbia more in depth in a future episode. But no matter what the reasons were that The Last Emperor was mishandled by Columbia, the fact remains that the movie was the studio's 12th and, to date, final Best Picture winner. And together, Platoon and Last Emperor remains the only back-to-back Best Picture winners to be produced by an independent production company. 1988 would be the year Hemdale stopped sending films out through other distributors. Their first film of the year to hit theaters would be The Supergrass, a British comedy featuring Jennifer Saunders, Robbie Coltrane, and Nigel Planner and Adrian Edmondson of The Young Ones. It arrived in American theaters on February 5th, a full two and a half years after being released in the UK, but it didn't leave much of a mark in the States. To date, it's never been released on any video format on this side of the Atlantic, although you can still find a PAL-encoded VHS tape for sale on Amazon if you really want to take a chance with it. High Season would arrive in theaters on March 25th. The pedigree of this film is pretty impressive. Its first-time director, Claire Peplow, had previously worked on the screenplay for Antonioni's Zabriskie Point and The Passenger. Peplow had written the screenplay for High Season with her brother, Mark Peplow, who had also co-wrote the Oscar-winning screenplay to The Last Emperor with Bernardo Bertolucci, to whom Miss Peplow was married to for 40 years until his death in 2018. High Season starred Jacqueline Bissett and James Fox, and also featured future Oscar nominees Kenneth Branagh and Leslie Manville in early major roles. Roger Ebert would give the film three out of four stars, calling it an example of a rare species, the intelligent, silly movie. But the film would only gross about $1.125 million during its abbreviated run. The Tale of Ruby Rose was a PG-rated Aussie horror thriller about a young woman living in the isolated wilderness of the Tasmanian highlands with her husband and young stepson, featuring a group of actors you've never heard of and a director who never made a dramatic narrative feature before or since this film. It also had the unfortunate timing of opening on Wednesday, May 25th, Memorial Day weekend, the traditional start of the summer movie season back then, against Rambo 3 and Crocodile Dundee 2 and Willow, which is probably why you've never heard of it, or why there's no records of its box office grosses. You can watch the film on Amazon Prime if you're a resident of Australia, or you can try to find a nearly 30-year-old used VHS tape. In July, Hemdale would release the Peter Weller-Kathy Baker drama A Killing Affair in four theaters in Los Angeles. After a few weeks, the movie about a widow in World War II-era West Virginia who takes on a drifter whom she believes killed her husband, would have sold but $35,000 worth of tickets and quietly disappear into the night. That is, until Hemdale sued the film's home distributor, Prism Entertainment, for a breach of contract concerning payments for the movie. And in a continuing theme, Prism criticized Hemdale's handling of the film's theatrical distribution in their response, stating the company failed to provide, quote, the number of prints and the number of markets, unquote, specified in their contract. September 29th saw the release of Frank Rodham's War Party, 
a drama featuring Billy Worth and Kevin Dillon, about three young members of the Blackfeet Indian tribe who find themselves on the run from authorities when a reenactment of a hundred-year-old battle between the U.S. cavalry and the tribe turns deadly, and they are to blame. The movie would be mostly filmed on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, and the British director Rodham aimed to have a real dialogue about the conflicts and distrust that can characterize interactions between Native and white Americans. So you can imagine how Rodham felt when he attended the film's premiere and discovered the ending of his movie had been changed without his knowledge. Daly, at the suggestion of the film's editor, had a quick moment from an unused scene inserted during the final conflict between the Native Americans and the National Guard, which completely changed the context of the moment and, frankly, of the entire movie. The film would open in nearly 350 theaters, but couldn't even make $300,000 that weekend. When the film left theaters a couple weeks later, it closed out its run with nearly $660,000 in ticket sales. Thanksgiving weekend would herald the arrival of Buster, a romantic crime comedy that would be the debut starring film role for Genesis drummer Phil Collins. Phil Collins in his motion picture debut as Buster. A small-time crook. With big-time dreams. What is it? Elizabeth Taylor's jewelry. It's a roll my own train. One a million quid. doing it all for me. This is a crime against the very structure of our society. Right. We'll go. Like the polka. Who is that? Oh, Mexico, you ignorant sod. Still a reward out for Buster Edwards. Ain't no one gonna touch us now, Mum. We got it made. Come out and give yourself up quietly. Now remember that whatever happens, I love you. I want these men locked up. Taxi! Phil Collins. What I do borrow from banks. I mean, that is my job. Julie Walters. I mean, with their permission. Buster, he'll steal your heart. Featuring Phil Collins' hit singles, Two Hearts and Groovy Kind of Love. While Collins was a child actor on the British stages and is featured as an extra in the Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night, he would only have one true acting role on screen before Buster, and that would be on a 1985 episode of Miami Vice. Collins had charm to spare at the time, and he's not bad in the role, but he's certainly not in the same league as co-stars Julie Walters or Anthony Quayle. It didn't help that the film would secure an R rating, and it certainly wasn't helped by opening against Bill Murray's Scrooged or Cocoon the Return. Hemdale would sell the film out in 217 theaters nationwide and would earn more on a per-screen average than War Party two months earlier, but a 19th place opening with a little more than $265,000 was not going to get much better. Even with two number one hit singles performed by Collins on the movie soundtrack, including the Oscar-nominated song Two Hearts, Buster would slink out of theaters after six weeks and about $540,000 in box office receipts. Speaking of Oscars, Hemdale would release their Oscar-bait addiction drama The Boost in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York City, Toronto, and Washington, D.C. on December 23rd. Directed by Harold Becker, The Boost starred Becker's Onionfield star James Woods and Sean Young as a married couple struggling with drug addictions. I remember I was somewhat excited for the movie when it was coming out because part of the film was shot in Santa Cruz. 
but that excitement was dashed pretty quickly upon viewing of the film. It was a dark and depressing movie, as any movie about drug dependency should be. And the film was not a success at the box office or at the Oscars. The film was not nominated for anything, and would gross roughly $785,000 a few weeks after it was released nationwide on January 4, 1989. And naturally, there was a lawsuit involved in the making of the movie, but for once, not directly involving Daly and Hemdale. Woods would sue Young for $6 million, saying that the actress was harassing the actor and his then fiance Sarah Owen, after an on-set affair between the two co-stars ended. Young denied the harassment accusation, and more importantly, denied the affair, and the suit was settled before ever going to trial. After two years of success at the Academy Awards, Hemdale could only muster one nomination for their entire 1988 film slate, that previously mentioned Best Song nomination for Buster. Two Hearts, a very fine pop song, would lose to Carly Simon's opening credits song for Working Girl, Let the River Run. Simon's song was definitely an anthem for its time, but it lacks a certain immutability that makes for a timeless song. Hemdale's first release of 1989 on January 13th would be the Kelly McGillis drama Ha Holmim, or Unsettled Land, or Once We Were Dreamers. It's had a lot of titles. McGillis and John Shea play two settlers who are part of a caravan of European Jews looking to establish a new home in 1920s Palestine. There's no box office data available for the film, but you can watch it on Amazon, Amazon Prime if you are so inclined. Their next film, Cohen and Tate, would hit theaters two weeks later on January 27th. Eric Redd, the writer of the surprise 1987 hit film The Hitcher, would make his featured directorial debut with this thriller, starring Roy Scheider and Adam Baldwin about two hitmen who kidnap a nine-year-old boy in protective custody who was the only witness of a mob hit. As one would expect from the writer of The Hitcher, it's a pretty dark and depressing movie, but this would not connect with moviegoers the way The Hitcher did two years earlier. Opening in 75 theaters, Cohen and Tate would gross only about $45,000 its opening weekend and would stop being tracked after two weeks in a total gross of $64,227. There's a pretty good Blu-ray version of the movie available from Shout Factory. March 3rd would see the release of the murder comedy Out Cold, starring Terry Garr, John Lithgow, Bruce McGill, and Randy Quaid. The film got some good reviews from the likes of Pauline Kael and Bruce Williamson of Playboy, but moviegoers ignored the film. In 142 theaters, Out Cold would only gross a tad more than $200,000, and like so many other Hemdale films, would stop tracking its grosses after two weeks, barely missing the $300,000 mark. If you want to check this film out, it's available to rent for $3.99 from Amazon's streaming service. Of the 25 films Hemdale would release into theaters during the 1980s, none would sell more tickets than the Gary Oldman-Kevin Bacon legal drama Criminal Law. Directed by Martin Campbell, the future director of the James Bond films GoldenEye and Casino Royale, Criminal Law stars Oldman as a cocksure defense attorney who manipulates the judicial system for his own benefits until he takes on a murder case defending the son of a prominent local businessman. Gary Oldman is great, as should be expected, but Kevin Bacon doesn't do menacing very well. But it has an amazing supporting cast, including Karen Young, Tess Harper, and Joe Don Baker. Criminal Law grossed over $2.6 million in 1,166 theaters when it hit theaters on April 28th, and by the time it left six weeks later, it would finish with $9.97 million in ticket sales. And of those 25 Hemdale releases from the 1980s, the best of the bunch would be their next release, Steve Desjardins' apocalyptic thriller Miracle Mile. Love can sure spin your head around. God, where do you begin? Well, hello. We must have been meant to be together. It's too bad you have to work tonight. Only till midnight. Fate is a funny thing. Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. 
It was one of those strange nights. <gasps> Finally meet the right girl and you blow it. That could ruin your whole day. In a big way. Dad, it's happening. This is it. This is really it. This is the big one. This is a joke, right? It's really happening. 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 This can't be true. We'll all be dead if we don't get out of here. Nobody believes this, do they? Not me, not Spongy. Make a list for me. People who would want to bring along. We gotta get Julie. Who's Julie? Harry Belafonte. Who are you? Who are you? Stop and let me off. I don't stop for nothing. Jump! Don't hurt me, man. I got Nakamichi Pioneer. I got everything. If it doesn't happen, I'll tell you. If what doesn't happen, man? I'm dreaming. That's, that's it, I'm dreaming. Y'all ready to go? You the pilot? Hey! Hey, you know anybody can fly a helicopter? Helicopter pilots. All the helicopter pilot bars are closed. What's the problem? It's true. Love can be exciting. Trust me with this. Even terrifying. Julie! Video! I love you! But nothing could prepare you for an experience like this. What is the truth, Harry? Miracle Mile. Listen, I'm just a guy who can pick up the phone. Anthony Edwards and Mary Winningham lead the story of a pair of star-crossed lovers who find true love just as the world is about to end. The story behind the making of the movie is almost as juicy as the movie itself. Desjarnat wrote the screenplay after graduating from the American Film Institute, which he sold to Warner Brothers in the hope that he would be allowed to direct it as well. The studio had other plans, wanting to make it on a larger scale, than they felt that could be done right with a first-time filmmaker. Desjarnat was then hired to write and direct Strange Brew, a feature version of the SCTV sketches featuring Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas as the beer-loving Mackenzie brothers. Thomas would tell Desjarnat he wanted to base the film's story on Hamlet, which is what was delivered. Desjarnat's draft of Strange Brew was too faithful to the Shakespeare play, and he was paid $50,000 to go away. The filmmaker took that money and bought the rights to Miracle Mile back from Warner Brothers. Soon thereafter, American Film, the movie magazine published by his alma mater, would name Miracle Mile as one of the ten best unproduced screenplays. He would do another polish of the screenplay, and Warners would come back to him with a $400,000 offer to buy it again, but still without him directing. Desjarnat turned them down. There were a couple false starts with production, once with Nicolas Cage as the lead, and another with Kurt Russell. Desjarnat would finally make his feature directing debut with the 1986 sci-fi film Cherry 2000, although the film would get a blink-and-you-missed-it release through Orion Pictures. Desjarnat was able to hook John Daly and Hemdale in with a $3.7 million budget. The film would shoot nights eight weeks throughout Los Angeles, and would feature one of Tangerine's Dream's best scores. Roger Ebert would praise the film, but when it opened in 143 theaters on May 19th, the public would mostly be indifferent to the film, with $341,000 in ticket sales that weekend. After three weeks, Hemdale stopped tracking the grosses, which stood at $1.145 million, but the film has since become a true cult hit, you can rent Miracle Mile from Amazon Prime for $3.99, or you can buy the extras-filled Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. I had the opportunity to ask the director if he had any stories about working with John Daly and the Hemdale team getting the movie into theaters. Desjardins' response? I might be the only director to make a film with John that still had a relationship with him afterwards. If Criminal Law was their most successful release, and Miracle Mile was the best movie they released, their next follow-up would be absolutely their weirdest. By now, we all know how batshit crazy Nicolas Cage is, right? Vampire's Kiss would be the apex of Cage the actor at his most insane indulgences. 
And why not? In Vampire's Kiss, he plays Peter Lowe, a literary agent who was already losing touch with reality before an incident with Jennifer Beals one night leaves him believing he's becoming a vampire. Cage really does go for broke with his performance, and, if rumors are true, he was so method in his acting that he ate a live cockroach during one scene. About the only good review you can find for the film when it first opened was from noted critic whore Jeff Craig of 60 Seconds Preview, who could only muster the film featured, quote, an incredible performance from Nicolas Cage, unquote. The movie would only open in 29 theaters on June 2nd and would only gross about $100,000 that weekend. Amazingly, the film would play a full six weeks in theaters before Hemdale stopped tracking it, with a final gross just over $725,000. You can catch the movie for free through Vudu or as part of Amazon Prime. Shag, the movie, was another Hemdale production written by Love at Stake writers Lanier Laney and Terry Sweeney. This time, instead of the late 1600s Salem, this comedy would take place in 1960s South Carolina as four teenage friends go on a trip to spring break before one of them gets married. The Shag, if you're unfamiliar with it, was a brief dance craze in the 60s, one of many during the decade that included the Freddy, the Frog, the Jerk, the Mashed Potato, the Monster Mash, the Shake, the Shimmy, the Twist, and the Watusi. Do you know that Wilson Pickett song, Land of a Thousand Dances? was originally written and recorded in 1962, around the time frame for this movie, about a number of the fad dances that were going around. The Shag would not be one of the 16 dances mentioned by name in the song, since the Shag didn't become a thing for another year. Nor is it featured in the movie, since Wilson Pickett would not record his version of this song until 1965, two years after this movie takes place. I'm just bringing this up because... I will probably never get another chance to play some Wilson Pickett on this podcast. Cates, Bridget Fonda, Annabeth Gish, and Paige Hanna would play the four young ladies, and both Fonda and co-star Scott Coffey would be nominated for Independent Spirit Awards for their supporting performances. Hemdales had high hopes for the movie, believing that they had the next Dirty Dancing, and released the film into 850 theaters nationwide on July 21st, and Hemdale spent more money on promotions for Shag than they had for any film before. The stars were sent out on a 30-city promotional tour before the release. They sponsored soundtrack album giveaways with many radio stations nationwide, produced several promotional music videos, and even created an educational guide for use in summer schools and camps. But this would not be Hemdale's Dirty Dancing. 
Shag would only open to $2 million in ticket sales and would disappear from theaters after three weeks and a $7 million gross haul. Shag is currently only available for purchase on DVD. Four weeks later, on August 18th, Hemdale would release the Western drama Blood Red. Directed by Peter Matheson, an actor-turned-filmmaker who was also the cousin of Academy Award-winning writer Horton Foote and the father of actress Mary Stuart Masterson, Blood Red tells the story of a Sicilian family in 1890s California who must protect their vineyard from a powerful train baron who wants to claim their land for a new railroad line. It probably has the single best cast overall of any Hemdale movie, including Eric Roberts, Dennis Hopper, Burt Young, Michael Madsen, Elias Coteus, Aldo Ray, Susan Anspa, and Giancarlo Giannini. But because this was shot in 1986 and not released until 1989, it would technically be the very first movie to feature a young actress named Julia Roberts, who was recommended for the role of Eric Roberts' younger sister by Eric Roberts, her older brother. Although by the time this came out, she had already been seen on screen in the musical drama Satisfaction with Liam Neeson and her star-making role in Mystic Pizza. The film would only open in a few theaters out west and would not be tracked after its opening weekend with a first, last, and only reported gross of $15,510. The Australian sci-fi movie The Time Guardian would arrive in America on September 22nd, It's a mess of a film, and most likely only got any kind of theatrical release in America because of two of its co-stars, Dean Stockwell, who had recently been nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Jonathan Demme's Married to the Mob, and Carrie Fisher. In the year 4039, an entire city is sent back in time to 1988 in order to elude an army of killer cyborgs. The movie stars Tom Berlinson, who had become famous for a hot minute several years earlier as the star of The Man from Snowy River, but he wasn't much of an action star, and the film would bomb everywhere it played. In Australia, where it had been released two years earlier, the film couldn't even sell $100,000 worth of tickets in its own home country. In America, the gross would be closer to $550,000, but still nowhere near its $8 million production budget. Again, you can stream this movie through Amazon if you're in Australia. Otherwise, you'll have to settle for an old used VHS tape to check it out. On November 10th, Hemdale would release Staying Together, a family drama directed by Oscar-winning actress Lee Grant. The movie stars Sean Astin, Dermot Mulroney, and Tim Quill as three brothers who are torn apart when their father sells the family restaurant They were expecting to take over once their dad retired. The film also features Close Encounters actress Melinda Dillon as their mom, Stockard Channing, Daphne Zuniga, Grant's daughter Dinah Manoff, who also starred in Grease alongside Miss Channing, and Levon Helm, the drummer of the band, in a rare acting role. The film would receive decent reviews and would gross a little more than $2 million when it opened in 1,045 theaters. When Hemdale stopped tracking the film three weeks later, after Thanksgiving weekend, the film had grossed around $4.4 million. You can purchase it on DVD. The final Hemdale release of the 1980s would be another Aussie production, the romantic drama The Everlasting Secret Family, which would arrive in American theaters on November 17th. Or at least it opened on one screen in New York City on November 17th, the best I can tell. In the film, a group of middle-aged homosexual men in a society not unlike the Freemasons hold power and influence over a group of teenage schoolboys at a local private school. Fourteen years later, one of those boys desperately tries to hang on to the power and privilege he has attained as the boy toy of several of those powerful men. In her review of the film, Janet Maslin of the New York Times noted the first half of the film was absorbing, while the second half was rather ludicrous. And a review for the magazine Time Out wondered why a film that feels so abundantly homophobic could spend so much of its running time focused on boyish bronzed muscles and firm buttocks. There were no reported grosses for the film, and you can catch this film in two different parts from Daily Motion website.
Hemdale would release a few dozen more movies in the early 1990s, including Chattahoochee, a drama best known today as the movie where Gary Oldman and Frances McDormand would play spouses, The Belly of a Whale, a Peter Greenaway drama featuring Brian Dennehy in one of his best roles, which had originally been released in England in 1987. Vincent and Theo, a Robert Altman drama featuring Tim Roth as Vincent Van Gogh. Hidden Agenda, a Ken Loach political drama starring Brian Cox and Francis McDormand as a police investigator looking into the murder of an American human rights lawyer in Northern Ireland and the murdered lawyer's assistant. And Impromptu, a British period drama about the love affair between composer Frederick Chopin and the novelist George Sand, played by Hugh Grant and Judy Davis, respectively, which also features Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters, Julian Sands, and Emma Thompson. Most of these movies would do poorly to just okay at the box office. But Hemdale's biggest problems weren't the ratio of successes to failures when it came to producing or distributing movies. Its downfall would be Daly's inability to pay people for their work in a timely fashion. Between 1981 and 1988, Daly and Hemdale were sued no less than 30 times by filmmakers claiming some form of breach of contract. We briefly touched on several of those suits earlier, but the straw that would break the camel's back would be the October 1990 lawsuit filed by James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, producer Gail Ann Hurd, and visual effects coordinator Stan Winston over unpaid profits from The Terminator. Hemdale, which was already in a financial bind, would be forced to sell the sequel rights to future Terminator movies by the courts in order to pay some of the damages. Those rights would be sold to Caroco Pictures for $5 million, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day would go into production soon thereafter, to be released by TriStar Pictures the following summer. Hemdale, now deprived of its most valuable asset, would file for bankruptcy in early 1991. Daly would leave the company to start a new production company, Entertech Media, and those who took over Hemdale would sue Daly in 1992 for selling valuable Hemdale assets to other companies run by Daly at greatly reduced prices before that 1991 bankruptcy. I had the opportunity to work with John Daly for a brief and shining moment in 1999. I was hired to be the second AD on a low-budget science fiction movie he was producing out of his office at the corner of Wilshire and Highland on the Miracle Mile. I was excited because I would be my first assistant director job on a feature film, and I would be working with a real film producer. I don't remember the name of the movie, but it had a rather generic title like Area 51 or some shit like that, and we were supposed to start shooting outside Tucson, Arizona sometime in the fall. But a couple weeks before the start of principal photography, the entire crew was released. No explanation, no further compensation, no apology, just we're shutting down. There's literally nothing online about the movie since it never got made. Which is odd because there's info about a film I was going to co-produce and co-direct back in 1995 about the Los Angeles underground music scene. That info can still be found online even though it never got made either. Daly would go on to start directing films at the age of 67 when he made The Aryan Couple with Oscar-winning actor Martin Landau in 2004. He would subsequently direct Margot Kidder in the thriller The Box Collector in 2007. John Daly would pass away of cancer in Los Angeles on Halloween Day 2008. Of the over 100 films he and Hemdale helped produce, finance, or release... They would gross more than $1.5 billion worldwide and record 21 Oscar nominations and 13 wins, including those back-to-back Best Picture wins for Platoon and The Last Emperor. Hemdale would give Keanu Reeves, Julia Roberts, and Denzel Washington some of their earliest starring roles, and they would finance films for the likes of Gillian Armstrong, Michael Apted, James Cameron, James Foley, Tim Hunter, Ken Loach, John Schlesinger, and Oliver Stone. That's quite a legacy. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. 
As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we relied on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the film higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Oh,